to tonight's episode of The Debrief. I am your troll host, Brianna Joy Gray, <clears throat> playing this intro song, obviously in reference to the events of last night, about which we did an emergency debrief session, which was a lot of fun. Um, and we can continue to talk about it tonight. I know there are a lot of people in the queue and people have continued takes and there's been some news updates. There have been apologies issued from both camps. Many, many, many terrible takes, which I have been screen grabbing and saving in case anybody wants to just revel in the absurdity and escapism that was this last um, Oscars news cycle. However, we also have some real business to take care of today. Biden announced his budget for the fiscal year of 2020. I'm sure a lot of you saw that and had thoughts and feelings about the enormous increases to the military budget and the paucity of domestic spending, you know, contrasted to the failures of Build Back Better and the hand-wringing over the amounts of money that progressives wanted to spend on American citizens. There was obviously uh, the speech from yesterday and the continued back and forth with the press corps today about whether or not Biden really meant doing a regime regime change when he said Putin absolutely cannot stay in power. Uh, and of course we have today's episode with Joe Cicerone, which was, I thought very enjoyable, but I know some of you on Patreon had other thoughts and feelings, which you're oh so helpfully always wanting to share with me. So without further ado, let's get right into it. I'm going to start by playing a clip from the episode as I sometimes do, and then we will be off to the races. Here we go. Do what we think. Whoops. <laughs> Got to turn off Solange first. <laughs> okay. Sorry about that. Here we go. This is part of what we have to do about rethinking nuclear weapons. We can't think of these things as just some sort of an arcane strategic debate. We have to think of them like big tobacco selling cigarettes or big pharma selling opioids yeah. or fossil fuel companies selling oil and gas. They know these products are going to kill the people they're selling them to and they sell them anyway. And big nuke is no different. Well, I want to ask you a little bit about what kind of pushback has been coming from the left in this moment. Where has it been admirable and where do you see it as inadequate? Hmm. I saw you re re talk recently about, um, uh, approvingly of uh, Pramila Jayapal's call for oh, yeah. nuclear abolition, for instance. I mean, what's going on on the Hill? Right. For example, uh, Eleanor Norton Holmes has sponsored a bill to support the international treaty banning nuclear weapons. 
we don't, this doesn't get much attention in the United States, but internationally, there's been this movement over the last five years that has led to the United Nations passing a treaty prohibiting nuclear weapons. The same way we have treaties prohibiting chemical weapons and prohibiting biological weapons and prohibiting landmines. You know, they, there is now a treaty and it, 120 countries, I think, voted for it and 56 have now ratified it. So this is actually international law. This treaty exists. It's law. Mm. But it only applies to people who sign the treaty. Mm. And so none of the nuclear armed states have signed the treaty. But that's an encouraging sign. All right. So that was Joe expressing some credulity that I, you know, I'm not really bought in for. But, you know, I appreciate his perspective with respect to how progressives on the Hill are pushing for denuclearization. Obviously, if you listen to the episode, you saw that I expressed that skepticism right back to him there and in some other parts of the episode. I really appreciated him as an open interlocutor, even if we didn't entirely agree on everything. And I thought it was a really productive conversation. There was another moment that I wanted to play. I think this was from the pre the free promo clip. So those of you who are not subscribers might have caught this in your feed today. One of the most fascinating parts of the episode for me was pushing him on this question, which I feel like everyone is hopping over, even a lot of people on the left, of what the standard is, what the ethical standard is, what the political standard is, what the moral standard is for providing weapons to a country. We very quickly often jump to this conversation about, well, they're in need and we can help them without getting to the root of what the imperialism question is, which is why America is in this role of, as the world's policeman. And I, I you know, I, you know, the, where, where two gets brought up, the Holocaust gets brought up and people are obviously open to the idea that there is a line. Maybe it's like they say about pornography, you know it when you see it, but I would like to push us all to continue to try to evaluate what that line is because as you know, per the title of this episode, it feels to me like oftentimes the war isn't necessarily being used as a way to get us to a negotiating table. It's being used to justify negotiated positions that everyone kind of knows are going to come to eventually. And it's just like the machine in that episode of Star Trek that says, okay, we're going to tabulate the numbers and the human beings have to come and line up and just be put to death so that society can keep on, even though there's no actual need for the fighting. Um, so I am going to play this clip. I'm going to pick up my food, which just arrived, <laughs> and then we're going to get right into this question. Thank you for your patience. I just want to circle back to something you just said about these non-military solutions being the way. And I want to come back to the case to be made for why the U.S. should arm Ukraine. Oh, yeah. This is something that is I'm struggling with as a leftist. Because the kind of humanitarian case, the humanitarian desire to support a group of people who is being invaded, citizens through no fault of their own who are trying to stay in their homes and protect their communities is obvious. But the part of the conversation that gets hop skipped over is whether or not the United States of America should be playing a role in supporting via distribution of arms. So there's like a couple parts of this. One, America's involvement, period. Two, whether it should come from offering quote unquote lethal aid as opposed to humanitarian aid. That first question is really the imperialism question, right? How is America determining? How is the nation determining when it does and does not get into conflicts? Because the fact of its failure to intervene in other humanitarian moments, mm -hmm. some of which are ongoing and some of which are of our own design, we contributed to, 
causes some on the left to see this as, despite being perhaps more morally virtuous than other moments, ultimately reflective of some kind of pretext. An absent inability to articulate a kind of moral line here, a moral litmus test, an interventionist litmus test, you were always going to have people who at the end of the day, despite their kind of emotional response or their abstract humanitarian response, do not feel it's appropriate for the United States to be participating in a conflict by providing weapons of of death. Yeah, yes. So there's a pacifist left that has that view. Or at least that's not everybody, but some people, absolutely. No war ever. Conscientious objector, not going to participate. Get it. Totally legitimate. But there's the other that's sort of the anti-imperialist left. And this is sort of where I started out, you know, I was protesting the Vietnam War. And the more I learned about the Vietnam War, the more I realized this was part of a pattern that goes back to at least 1898. Okay. Or you could say when European settlers first came to this country, just occupying other people's land and killing the people that were there. And there's no question that a lot of what U.S. policy has done is paved the way for Putin's invasion, NATO expansion. I was against it, and certainly at least the way it was done, ignoring Russia's legitimate security concerns. Our invasion of Iraq looks a lot like Putin's invasion of Ukraine, including Mm -hmm. even making up the lie that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, we had to go get them. The way Putin is claiming that Ukraine has nuclear weapons or is trying to get nuclear weapons, so he has to go in and do it. You can be critical, as I am, of all those policies and still say none of that justifies Putin's invasion. And that the U.S. does not have a defense commitment to defend Ukraine. We don't have a defense alliance with them. They're not an ally. And Biden has tried very hard to stay out of this conflict. He's not looking for an excuse. There may be some people who are looking for an excuse that do want to take it to Russia. But Biden and his national security team, they are not in that camp. They've been trying to avoid this. But once that failed, once the war started, I don't know, how can you not aid those people? How can you sit by and and watch them get killed? The answer is the same way we stayed out of the Rwandan genocide and the same way we stay out of most things that happen across the globe. This is not an argument that I'm making, but the the how can we not seems to be uniquely tethered to this conflict, as though we are always similarly inspired to reach out out of our humanitarian goals. And the reality is, if this were many other situations, we would simply be ignorant as a population of what is going on the same way the news fails to cover any number of other conflicts that are ongoing, especially those that are in the global south. Yeah, I would say there's three core reasons. And the first are sort of general this is happening to white people, not brown people. Right? Right off the right. top. <laughs> right, right off the top. Off the top Hashtag know. they look like us. Exactly. Parroted it, over and over again. Right. It's really emotional for me because I see European people with blue eyes and blonde hair being killed. Children being killed every day with Putin's missiles. If you'd like to hear more, remember you can subscribe at patreon.com. Sorry about that. All right. Let's hear from you. Oh, before I do, I also just wanted to mention the reason I was late tonight was because I was at this fundraising event for five black female congressional candidates. Senator Nina Turner was there. Some of the folks from the um, live stream that we did with Marianne and Katie Halper and co were on the stage. Corey Bush ended up showing up and helping, you know, you know, encouraging people to fundraise. It was a really interesting room to be in, given what you all know what my my politics are and the conversations we've been having about the level of commitment to 
electoralism should be on the left. And it, and it's something that I would, I'm also open to talking about tonight if people want to continue that conversation because there is something really compelling when you're talking to people who do come from these working class backgrounds who, whether or not you agree with them, are fighting for something that they think is going to be effective and that they seem to be really sincerely believing in. And you see uh, what feels like a real willingness to fight. And I wonder if they were pushed more to answer the questions about what they will do differently and how they're going to address the structural barriers that are the Democratic Party and the establishment Democrats, if they could get more fundraising dollars, because it does seem to me that everyone's struggling and that the fire that was behind people like, you know, even, you know, core Bernie Kratz, like Senator Turner, isn't there anymore. And I think the answer is actually talking about these things more, not less, and talking about the less disappointment more, not kind of brushing it under the rug. And I'd be curious to know what you guys think about that. I want to jump around the queue. I see a lot of familiar faces and I'm going to avoid them at first, but don't panic. I'm going to circle back. I don't recall seeing Andy, the passed out Teletubby before. So let's make Andy the first caller. What's on your mind? Hello. Can you hear me? I can. All right. Great to hear you. Right back at you. What's on your mind tonight? Hmm. Well, I guess I was thinking about a little bit of the Putin speech about how he's think about like uh, invading Ukraine. I don't know. I guess I was thinking about like weakness and I in like a political sense and how you know people people say like oh people would view Putin as weak if he were to like. Uh, stop here or do this or we would seem weak if we were to like you know give up this or that and I guess what what is your thoughts of that as like I don't know political talk I find that very frustrating it's that it's that kind of talk that made me think of the Star Trek episode right I'm so sorry I have this burger in my mouth I really apologize I rushed on this event and I was starving um I promise I'm gonna stop eating the a taste for Armageddon you know, the whole point is that when it's mechanized in that way, it becomes obvious that the war games that we play are used to negotiate a position. And that it's not the actual, like, idea of, like, you're fighting and, like, dying for something you believe in. It's political parties knowing that they have to basically justify concessions by being able to say, basically, I can't take it, so I'm going to have to give in, but only after I demonstrate mm-hmm. that I can't take it. And whereas you could probably plot out and figure out what people's resources are and the likelihood of winning a battle and are you going to win a land war in Europe and all of this kind of stuff and come to these conclusions without all the mass destruction and death, no one, no one can politically tolerate it unless you go through the motions. So this is the reason I spoke when I talked to Joe is because weeks ago, weeks ago, as I mentioned in the episode, we were in a room together having a conversation with a larger group and the idea of any concession to Putin was really just dismissed out of hand in the room. Mm-hmm. And I was very frustrated because I was like, why? Like, you guys aren't even entertaining it. Because at that point, it was like, you know, days after the invasion, people hadn't, you know, people, I guess, were still entertaining this fantasy that little old U- Ukraine was going to defeat a nuclear power, <laughs> you know, and that it was somehow like this, this self-righteousness. I mean, that sounds a little unkind because I think the people in the room were well-meaning, but there was this mm-hmm. kind of like myopic delusion that said that like we were going to be invested in like Biden's ego oh, yeah. or the West's ego or something. 
Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think I, no, no, I was just kind of agreeing with you, but like I was thinking about how, you know, you talked about like uh, Biden's like budget and I read a tweet like that you were talking about how like uh, Medicare was like something billion and then they went ahead and spent like a billion on uh, something on like war, uh, like 82 billion. Yeah, it would take, this is, these are 2019 numbers because that's the last yes, time I was yes. working for a campaign that was giving me stats. But in 2019, I'm sure the number is bigger now, but it would only have taken 80, $81 billion to cancel all medical debt, cancel all outstanding medical debt, $81 billion. And in 2017, the bipartisan majority, including many Democrats, including Elizabeth Warren, voted to increase Trump's, Donald Trump's military budget, Trump that was supposed to be so crazy and I can't believe his fingers on the button, Mm -hmm. voted to increase his military budget by by $82 billion. Yes. And now we're looking at, what is it, $32 billion being added on to this already bloated budget? Mm, Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I guess it just made me think about how, like, sorry, I'm just nervous. Um, no, go ahead. Yeah, I, I did see kind of, I don't know, now I'm losing it, but I remember thinking, like, you know, Ukraine, Putin is Will Smith, and Ukraine <laughs> is Steve Rock. Ukraine is who? Uh, the guy that got slapped. I'm sorry. Chris, Chris Tucker. You're going to have yeah. to unpack that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm just a little nervous. But yeah, I just okay. Can to you tell me where on. you're calling in from? What state are you from? I'm from California, Cupertino. So. All right. So you're from that state where everything's supposed to be hunky-dory because it's overwhelmingly Democrat, but you can't mm-hmm. seem to manage to get anything done either, which it doesn't bode well nope. for the arguments that are being made by progressive um these progressives running for Congress. Yeah. My dad's actually a, um, a Republican, which is interesting, a conservative. And I don't know. What's I think he saying that, about all this? What's his attitude toward Ukraine? Uh, my dad's like, he hasn't really talked about it. I think that's just kind of the talking point of a lot of Democrats is that, you know, it's happening far away. And their understanding of it is that like Putin wants to re um, evaluate the, um, Soviet Union and gain more power. And that's what, you know, when I talked to him, he said. It's interesting that I was watching a bunch of Tucker Carlson clips in an effort mm-hmm. to understand and just looking at what the highest performing videos were on on the Fox YouTube channel, which is a mm-hmm. fascinating exercise that I kind of sort of recommend. Uh, but it's what's what's interesting is that if you go to MSNBC, there's one line, there's one opinion to have about Ukraine which is that Putin is evil. He was in league with Donald Trump to make bring Republicans into power. Uh, there's no mention of anything called NATO. Uh, he wants to you know, reconstitute the Soviet Union. It was an imperialist madman driven only by that particular ambition. And that's point blank period. If you look at Fox, there's actually two camps. There is a kind of anti-Putin camp. That wants to go to war and sell all the bombs and missiles, and I'm sure it's being funded mm-hmm. by a big Raytheon or whatever. Yeah. Then there's also the Tucker Carlson line and this kind of isolationist, I can't believe we're spending all this money on this, and these Europeans and their social welfare states want us to pay for their war. Yeah. Meanwhile, gas prices are high. And I think they know how to like, talk to people it. and like you know address their worries, but I don't know. 
Yeah, I think they just want to address people's worries. Like, they're good at that and, like, knowing the people, but, like, the conservative people, I mean. Yeah, and, and it's – when you really listen to Tucker, it's fascinating because he gets, like, 80% of his way to a point and then completely – somehow he managed to make – gas prices are high uh-huh. and that's bad, but also Governor Newsom – passing out these gas tax cards to help people pay for gas is also bad because he's trying to encourage a nanny state and preventing you from doing things on your own, which I'm not exactly sure how people are supposed to remedy the gas situation on their own, like set up little oil wells in their backyard, a la black gold, Texas tea, you know, Mm -hmm. what's that? What's the show? What's the show? Come on from the sixties or come on, black gold, Texas tea. This is my 19th birthday. So I don't oh my know God. anything. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Let me tell you about a story about a man named Fred, a poor mountaineer, barely kept his family fed. Then one day he was chewing down some food. Up through the ground came a bubbling crude. Oil it is. Black gold. Texas tea. Come on, people. Beverly Hillbillies. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank Solve you. that mystery. All right. Okay. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to let I'm going to let you go before I end up singing yeah. some more and lose all my subscriber base. But thank you for calling in, Andy. Yeah, no, it was good talking. All right, take care. Uh, let's hop around a little bit. Uh, let's see. Uh, how about Gez? What is on your mind, Gez? Unmute hey. yourself and yeah, hey, there you go. Hey, yeah. What's I've I've actually been thinking. Um, I'm still stuck on how many people kind of got the prediction of the that the invasion wasn't going to happen wrong. I just okay. can't, I can't shake that. <laughs> and, you know, there's one phrase um, that I think Matt Taibbi and his, um, he, he wrote something really brief about it. And he, he said something like, I think, it's like, I think I was guilty of like a re- kind of reverse chauvinism. Mm. And that phrase that's just been stuck in my head. What do you think he meant by that? <sighs> I don't, I mean, I think what he meant is, um, well, the way I interpret it is, so so you have these sources, you know, you you have like, um, you have the government pretty much telling you that they have sources that, you telling you the invasion's going to happen. And there's this history of um, uh, trusting that and, you know, it, it just being part of a propaganda machine and. I don't know, just you start to, I guess, I guess you start to just not believe, yeah, not believe anything that comes out of their mouths. And, um, yeah, it's like, does, a, does the that scene, mean, is that, is that how you'd interpret it? I don't know. Yeah. It's like the scene in, um, Princess Bride <laughs> where he's trying to figure out which chalice has poison in it <laughs> and he like, he overthinks it too much by half. You know what I mean? Oh Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 We, you, you distrust your, you know, the interlocutor, your typical political opponent so much that you, you know, aren't, you know, you, you're too clever by half. I, I can see that happening. And, and look, honestly, I think that a lot of folks in this space have a very healthy skepticism toward traditional um, uh, sources of authority. And I go back and forth with this. I have a lot of empathy. I know that people have their frustrations with folks, but 
I have a lot of empathy for someone like Glenn and these others who have been countercultural figures for so long and have gotten so much right in part because they are able to block out the consensus and think for themselves in a way that's very, very difficult. And of course, the risks of doing that. And I, and I, when I say empathize, I really empathize because I had found myself in this position of trying to figure out how much I need to ignore the public. Because if I listen to them, I will be thrown off base and I will just conform uh, with a kind of group thing that is not as often incorrect and not productive, but how, but sometimes people are right. And I need to, this, the ship needs to be righted. And who are mm-hmm. my confidants? Who can I trust to like bounce ideas off of? And I think that sometimes like you get it wrong. As soon as you get the calculation a little wrong. Yep. And I also have a lot of empathy too. And I mean, it hasn't changed me going to those sources um, mm-hmm. just to balance out you know, the mainstream media and just all the other things that, that I hear. But um, I do think that I wish there had been more. So, you know, you have a model of how things work and you're struck with it making such a bad prediction. And I just saw a lot of like kind of doubling down and not as much. I mean, may, who knows what people do in their own minds, but in terms of, I don't know, the way a lot of the debate continued to play out. I don't know. I, I think in some cases I would have liked to see, even in some of the discussions that are had out here, just like a bit more question asking and not being so sure. I, I'll give you an example. Like the mm-hmm. way people talk about, um, the way I've heard a lot of debates go down with um, what the Ukrainians want or characterizing, for example, what happened in the Maidan in 2014 mm-hmm. as being um, Western-backed. I mean, they're, they're sure there's a... I, I understand the way that the U.S. meddled, but I also know enough about what's gone on internally in Ukraine to know that um, a lot of the motivations, a lot of what went into those protests, I mean, they, they're... <laughs> I mean, it, it came. It came from a lot of the people. Um, yeah, and, and I just think that's really. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. I've been talking to. I've had a lot of different conversations, not just on the podcast, but outside with people, including people on the left who I no one really trusts, who have been pushing back in exactly the way you described. And it's difficult because if you acknowledge that there's a group of people that are going to call you, you know, an imperialist pig, and Perfect. then if you obviously say the. The thing that is also true, which is that the U.S. meddled, you'll get called a Putin puppet. And it's, and it, it is difficult to live in that liminal zone. But, I, you know, the, the point that I was trying to make in the much maligned uh, episode with um, Matt does yeah. was that, like, I almost don't even care to get into it because I don't I don't know. You don't know and I don't know and mm-hmm. because of the diversity of opinion among the Ukrainian people. Anytime someone says the Ukrainian people want, I basically want to tune them out. Not because I disagree with them on what the Ukrainian people want, because that I, but because I'm very skeptical that they know, and because like, what do the American people want? I don't mm-hmm. fucking know. <laughs> exactly. and I, I'm one of them. It's very divided on, on a lot of issues. On some issues, it's less divided, you know. Yep, absolutely. So yeah, I think that that's right. And maybe look, maybe we can have um, Matt or Aaron come on and talk through 
that in the safe space, you know, I hope I hope that they would know that to the extent that I would want to talk about why they think I think they got it wrong, why they think they got it wrong. It's not because I'm trying to do a pile on or undermine them in any way, but because I want us to help figure out how not to make those mistakes again and to also you know try to rehabilitate our collective um, credibility. Yeah, but thank you for calling in, Des. Yep. Thanks. Bye bye. Grace, let's hear from you. What's on your mind this evening? Hey, um, yeah, I, I guess I kind of have a more philosophical question about this whole thing, which is okay. just like, if like, is, is war, like, is all of this just inevitable or is this more, you know, related to our economic system? Um, I feel like those are the things that I'm torn between because like, even just this week, the level of, you know, war propaganda that's popped up. And the fact that, I mean, there's people driving pickup trucks around here, waving giant, you know, Ukrainian flags and everybody has the front porch, you know, or everyone has like yard signs now. It's very reminiscent of the yellow ribbon. Um, yeah. I and that one. <laughs> we did have to play it in orchestra when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. I remember being like in seventh grade and like being the only person who what didn't want to sing proud to be an American when I went to go to this baseball game. <laughs> yeah, they made you sing proud to be an American. That's not even like a real anthem. I know. I know. But the people were really on that tip at the time. <laughs> wow. How um, old are you? May I ask? I'm 30. I, well, I just turned 33. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, you're not that much younger than me, but maybe I just missed those years living abroad or where, where are you from? What state do you live in? Uh, I'm in North Carolina, but I was in Jersey at the time. So we were pretty, you know, connected in with what was going on in New York. Jersey's the south of the north. New Jersey, they they call Princeton, you know, which is in New Jersey, the Harvard of the south. (laughs) That's hilarious. My, my, my husband's also from New Jersey and we always fight because I'm from South Jersey and he's from North Jersey and he just is like, you're from the south. It's Um, it is another world down there for sure, but I grew up in Atlantic city. So I've been knowing our former president for a minute. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) even when he tried to take away that little old lady's house, (laughs) um, Mm. when that whole battle went down, but, um, but yeah, I think that, I think I'm just like really stuck on like the human nature of it all, I guess. Um, because it seems like people are just stoked for war and, and I think yeah, it's just a question I've been grappling with because I can't understand. I just can't understand why people seem to be so cruel or wanting to harm one another so easily. Um, even if I, even just seeing that in my own community, you know, and actually they're building a Raytheon plant here. Um, so when we, yeah, like when we're saying, oh, it's not okay that you're um, chasing unhoused people around town and tearing up their tents and like bulldozing the only shit they have in the world, they're like, well, good news, we're getting the war machine soon and it's all going to be fine. <laughs> yeah, I am I am for the jobs that Asteroid will provide. Right, Asteroid exactly. Really hit the nail on I the mean, head with that one. I was getting like yelled at by a city council member here um, like a week ago. I went with these sunrise, like kind of protested um, our local city council retreat. And that was literally the response to like, we don't have affordable housing. And they're like, well, then why, why are you giving? I mean, cause we're giving like 
a ton of tax credits to, you know, to Raytheon. But that all makes it even, and in retrospect, you're like, okay, I've been watching this go down. Have they just been waiting for this war because they're building planes that drop nuclear nuclear weapons, you know? Yeah, I mean, that, I mean that's part of what, um, you know, Joe, Joe Cerencioni was saying is that, you know, one of the strategies is to make smaller nuclear bombs. So there's a higher likelihood that you're going to need them. And to, then you got to service the old bombs and then you got to build things to deliver the new bombs. And, you know, it happens to be, I mean, he thinks I'm being too cynical and I probably am because, you know, conspiracy brain, but all the old bombs happen, happen to be wearing out. They all have their life expectancy is ending right when this war is popping off and right when we withdrew from Afghanistan, it all just does seem very neat and tidy. You know, well, incentives, I, you have to feed the beast. They, I'm sorry. Oh, you have to feed the beast. Right. And the incentives, even if they don't seem purposeful, they all just do line up. And it almost doesn't matter if it's purposeful and conspiratorial. It just, if the, if the system works so functionally to make sure, uh, so efficiently to make sure that you never need to stop the war machine, then it might as well be purposeful. It might as well be in bad faith. It might as well be designed to do exactly what it's doing. And, and to your point, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to when you say people's willingness to hurt each other like who's the people exactly because the, the reality is people folks folks don't perceive it that way we all have these scripts like my, my favorite law professor that I talk about all the time John Hansen who was my uh, Torton corporate law professor he spent a lot of time talking about social psychology and we've talked about this Grace and his whole point was that like and this is what I always try to get across it's not, sitting around saying you're bad you're a bad person it's not that I disagree, obviously. I think that plenty of people suck, but it doesn't work because most people don't see themselves that way. And you're just right. talking to a wall. We all have these scripts that justify the systems that we're a part of. So the people who want to send bombs to Ukraine, these are like hashtag good liberals who are out here talking about the ethical thing to do is a no-fly zone. Some of them, not because they don't know what a no-fly zone is, but because – to them, it's better, and they've moralized it in their head that it's better than the alternative of like letting women and children die or whatever. You know, if you get, if you abstract things out enough, you can make a moral claim any way you want to. They're not thinking about people's family members that are being sent off to war and die. They're thinking about concepts like democracy, which seem worth anything. You know, and so that's yeah, that's, that's the job is. Is instead of, I mean, like we can sit here for a second and grieve that so many folks are caught up in a script, but then you got to, you know, it's our job to figure out how to shine light on the reality of the situation and make those scripts less powerful and provide alternative scripts that validate a status quo, a, a world that is so much better and more humane. And that is why I love to bring up Star Trek, and I don't care what the pissy person on <laughs> Patreon has to say about it. That's actually... <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, that that's actually what uh, one of my goals for my new year of life is to spend intentional time just envisioning the world that I want to see, you know, um, because I do think that I do think that it's much easier for people to follow a vision than it is for people to like to convince people um, to fight the bad thing, if that makes sense. Um, I mean, you know, that's what like Obama did so well. I mean, in terms of articulating the vision, I'm not necessarily getting Yeah, I mean, back then, it's just, it really was, I think, a learning process too, because 
as much as our interest in him was largely superficial, it was also the case that no one had even given us as much superficially as we had gotten from him before. So it wasn't like there was some other, like, person who had shown quite as bright as Obama. I mean, maybe like Kennedy, but he he was killed so early, and it was so long ago for most of us that to the extent mm. that he was going to disappoint, he didn't really, or at least the historical memory of him disappointing isn't that, you know? Yeah. So it it does it did really feel like we just kind of all had to go through that to wake up. And I don't know but for that if we would have gotten the Bernie moment, whatever this ultimately leads to. Yeah. Yeah, and but but right now I I think what's shocking me is just that they're so I mean it's almost like we're just too exhausted. Where is the dissent? Like the I mean it just feels like we're falling into an even wilder war situation and that we're all just like, hmm, you know, I, um, yeah, it's very confusing to me. It doesn't, I don't see, I don't really see any kind of opposition to it, I guess, at this point. And, um, you know, and it's just, and the, the idea of misinformation and then, um, you know, I mean, I find myself circling back around to people who I would have said I vehemently disagree with and be like, oh, you know, I mean, there is, there's a piece of that that I think has some truth, you know, um, a piece of what a piece of a piece of the idea. Well, I mean, like now that we're going back to the, you know, the laptop or whatever, like the idea that we just took all of this information out, called it misinformation. And now we're so fragmented on, um, you know, online that it's hard to even figure out what's what, how you Google something is going to give yeah, the result. Yeah. I think Abby is right. Like whatever you think of RT, whatever you think of Tucker Carlson, whatever, I don't mean to put those things in the same buckets, but whatever you think right. of MSNBC, whatever you think of the Hill, whatever you think of breaking points, whatever you think of me, whatever you think of chap, whatever it is, you really got to do consume all of it. The things, if you saw what I've listened to today, today I've listened to NPR. I've listened to the latest episode of Pods of America. I've listened to Tucker Carlson. I listened to Joe Biden's speech. I went and listened to this event with these Congress women and, and Cori Bush. I've consumed the gamut, all in an effort to figure out what I believe is true. You know, I, I, I've seen people say, look, I, I, I feel at this point I, I got to read RFK's book. It's like what I kind of got to feel like, you know, <laughs> that's on my list. Yeah. I'm going to read RFK's book. I'm going to read Chris Hedges book and maybe we'll have them both on the podcast next week. Chris Hedges is definitely coming back, but <laughs> you know, awesome. we'll you I know really that, that, that is, that's what you got to do. Cause there really is no independent source. And I see people in my comp mention saying all kinds of things and I don't know what to believe. And I, it's, and again, this is the, the way back to the Glenn point. If you, you know, you gotta, you gotta be, you gotta stay permeable, right? You gotta stay open to this stuff, but there are risks inherent to that as well. You can become, you can start to believe something that is crazy and conspiratorial and stupid and wrong. But I think the risk of that is lower than the risk of becoming siloed and wrong in the other direction. But it is a, it is a, a delicate balance and I appreciate all of your patience as I attempt to negotiate it. Thank you for calling in today, Grace. Thanks. Have a good one. You too. All right. Uh, Micah, what's on your mind this evening? Unmute yourself, my friend. Oh, can you hear me? Uh-huh. Sweet. Yeah. Um, a few things. 
One, um, I just kind of been thinking that like we're, we've been having this debate about you know how to approach how to approach this issue and whether or not we should you know be talking talking about it like in a sort of both sidesy way or like whether you know people people still say like they they support the you know the Ukrainian people but they're also concerned for like the Russian people and stuff and uh I don't know. I, I just think like, like people are paying more attention to this war than I feel like attention has been paid to any war that the United States has any kind of role to play in. Of course, it has a role to play in pretty much all of them. But anyway, um, so like since people are paying attention, like regardless of where the public mood is, I feel like... W- we maybe as like anti-war people should feel obligated to just take this opportunity to like go out there and, and, you know, like have some sort of mass like anti-war or peace march or something. And I know that's been said, but I've just kind of been thinking more and more that like, you know, like sort of perceptions be damned. Like there we have people with flags, you know, you know, supporting like Ukraine and stuff. And they think that they're like, you know, and, and, and they have, you know, a completely sort of myopic perception or a lot of people have really myopic perception of what's going on regardless. And I feel like we should just kind of like, like there needs to be kind of like a front, you know, like a sixties, seventies kind of, like actual anti-war movement that's okay, visible. So part of that was the draft. And as Grace was talking, I was thinking about the draft and how that would change things, but also how the way that we've you know, adjusted our military strategy to be focused on technology and drones and such, that that's not how it works anymore. And additionally, we, I think I, I am fully willing to sound conspiratorial about this. I think the real reason they don't want to cancel student debt and make college free is otherwise they would have to have a draft because so many people who uh, enlist are doing so to pay for college mm-hmm. to get health care. Like fully, like talk to anyone. That's what they're saying. <laughs> they want, they I've to thought about it. Or <laughs> right. So all of it is connected, right? The anti-war movement, the student debt cancellation, free college movement, the Medicare for all movement, all of it is connected. In the absence of a draft, you know, it, it has me thinking a lot about how groups like Socialist Alternative and people like Ajama Baraka and other people in that political sector are always really stressing internationalism. Gerald Horn did as well. Um, Sharice, uh, Dr. CBS did when she was on the podcast as well. And at the time, I remember pushing Gerald Horn. I wanted him to articulate to me what it was about the left. He was, he was criticizing the left for being insufficiently internationalist. And I was like, okay, great. 
tell me why. Tell me why it matters. Help explain to the audience, like, how would the left's analysis change if it, on this issue or that issue if it had a more internationalist approach? And, you know, I, I believe that there are answers to that question. I didn't find myself fully satisfied by his answers in that episode. That has as much to do with my um, ability as an interviewer as a, as, a, as a criticism at all. But this moment is making me appreciate how useful it would be to have international coalition, political coalition doing what can sound wishy-washy to your point and saying, well, I'm with the people of Ukraine and I'm with the people of Russia. There was actually organizations that said, like, no, this is about an international solidarity movement that's beyond borders. It has nothing to do with the despotic governments that we all are living under. And, you know, if we had uh, infrastructure to show genuine solidarity, whether it's financial, political, um, immigration, whatever kind of support we can give each other to help people resist. Because it is difficult. You can't just, you can't sanction everybody. <laughs> you know, you can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The extent that we're all in it together and all resisting along the same lines and the political consequences of one group standing up are felt in a country halfway across the world. I mean, that's incredibly powerful. And it also gives some, I think people want something more concrete to your point, something more concrete to point to and put their energy in because it can feel kind of deflating to say, well, I'm just for people. Because what do you do yeah. for that? Do I, do I give money to hashtag people? Do I you know, <laughs> say, right, and I'm not going to vote in midterms unless you support hashtag people? Like, what is it specifically? And I think that there's so much power, as we've talked about a lot on this podcast, in the demand. But yeah. the demand, you know, the, the, the levers have to be pulled by various constituencies. And, and, and you know, a lever needs a fulcrum. So, yeah. That talk about, talking about that sort of, need for internationalism makes me miss having Michael Brooks around, you know, that's kind of like what his channel was. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Anyway, um, (laughs) the, the kind of other thing that, that listening to the podcast today, uh, was kind of making me think about is how, like, there seems to be like, a spectrum of people who have been like, I don't know, important or relevant or like thinkers on the left. And like, there's been kind of, you know, like the, the movement, like, you know, hasn't really been much of a movement until somewhat recently. You almost kind of, at least for me, it kind of breaks it down into like, you know, whether you want to talk about like, post-Trump or pre-Trump or maybe Iraq war or whatever it is, like we've had these sort of standard bearers of left ideals and those have been, you know, really important to have, whether they be like media people or politicians or whatever, you know. Um, and and it seems like now, like they, they were sort of, like a lot of those people were kind of like shouting into empty space for a long time, or at least that's how they felt. And there wasn't really like room for a lot of, of really like serious left discourse, at least obviously I, I mean, I wasn't there for a lot of it, but it's my perception. And it just kind of seems like, like a lot of these people, like, like their conversations have been so, I don't know, like, like politically restricted for so long 
that they've sort of worked themselves into a place that's like as far as they're willing to go. And now that there's an actual movement of people who are seriously thinking like in a, you know, in their direction, but like really moving past them because I don't know, maybe it's a generational thing or something. Um, But we're just having conversations that are like a lot more like, okay, well that's, this is all totally fucked. So like, what are we going to try to formulate out of this? And it's almost like these people who have been the standard bearers kind of like you would hope that they would be, that they would feel like they could now like stretch their legs and really lean into it. But I feel like a lot of them are kind of, I don't know, just caught in like echo chambers or, or, you know, like the, the guest today, he, it sounded like he kept saying like he had colleagues that like, that would be a would espouse the same sort of pushback that you were espousing very effectively today and but really it kind of sounded like he was hearing a lot of the arguments or at least hearing them as succinctly for the first time you know and he's like a a distinguished fellow at this policy institute you know or whatever so i I don't ever want to sound like i'm being like bratty or ungrateful or not not gracious or whatever about guests and whatnot. Because th- through these conversations, I clarify my position. And I, and I, they're so useful to me, and I really appreciate your grace and the time that they spend with me. But, you know, you've been here over the course of the past year or so, or year and a half that I've been doing this podcast, and this has been the challenge. It's, it's been a, this process of me realizing the extent to which despite my incredible, mediocre, middle-class, bourgeois existence, I feel constantly, like, on the radical nice edge. And I know that's silly. I know that some people roll their eyes when I say that. And I know it's silly. I'm saying it because it's silly. It's absurd that I would even, for an instance, in any context, feel anywhere close to anybody's edge. Mm-hmm. You know? But it does often feel to me when I'm in these conversations, whether or not I'm talking to him, uh, abolitionist uh, expert or you know an anti-war expert or a student debt organizer or whatever it is a, a labor organizer they all have some reason not to say fully the thing that they know to be true mm-hmm. you know people who I have so much respect for they will, they were like well I can't fully say this on, on air because I gotta have this relationship with these uh, labor leaders but yes of course there's there's capture in the labor movement and that's largely why we don't have them jumping on issues like X, Y, and Z or while they support Joe Biden and aren't pushing for $15 or Medicare. You know, there's, that's what they'll yeah. say off camera. Or, oh, yes, you know, we should, we're going to have this march for student debt, but we're not going to do a, you know, we're not going to do a, 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 death strike. A death strike, sorry. And we're also not going to have a conversation about a general strike because, well, that's never going to happen, so we can't even talk about it. Because if we talk about it and it doesn't happen, then the left loses a little bit of credibility. And if I don't have credibility, how will I win the posting wars? You know? Right, right. It's like we're terrified of losing the messaging battle, and so it never goes any further than that. Well, no, it's worse than that. Because it's not even the messaging battle. We don't need to talk about messaging anymore. My God, everyone agrees. We, the issue is doing the things. People right. are terrified of doing the things, whether it's the Medicare for All marches that nobody wanted to show up for because if you do the march, which is a thing, 
and it doesn't magically materialize into Medicare for all, I guess, I don't know, someone's going to call you a loser and you're going to be in your fee-fees. Like, you are a loser for not fighting for Medicare for all. Tomorrow morning, they're having this hearing on Medicare for all. And depending on how late we go tonight, and i got to tell you, I had a very late light, light, late night last night covering the very important story that is uh, Oscar Gate. <laughs> so I'm kind of tired, but if I can get myself up in the morning, I was thinking of live streaming it. Wait, that what was there happening? There's a hearing on Medicare for All happening tomorrow morning at nine. No, I had person, but I think it's more easier for me to cover it if I'm just home streaming it. Yeah, no, I had no idea that there was going to be a hearing. It is happening. And I'm, I only know because you know, I'm paying attention. So. For all activists on the internet, and I saw it in one of their tweets. Yeah. And he tweeted it at me. It you seems know? almost intentional. Correct. I mean, it's Pramila Jayapal and them. I'm, you can hear the yeah. eye roll in my voice. <laughs> and so I'm going to watch and see what happens. Because I'll tell you what, around course the boat, when I was home over Thanksgiving in 2020 in the middle of goddamn pan- pandemic, and everybody was sitting behind their clickety-clack keyboards telling me how this was the worst idea in the world, I took it upon myself. One of the arguments was that these hearings don't get any traction, so there's no point in forcing a hearing, forcing um, us to have the hearing on a vote. And so I watched the last hearings that they had had in 2019, 2018, whenever it was. And I analyzed all the ways that they were not adequate. I was like, okay, this is a good start, but no one here is actually calling out any members of Congress for taking pharmaceutical money, even though many of them, the people who were on the panel, were some of the biggest beneficiaries of pharma bucks, and therefore they wouldn't even call it a Medicare for All hearing. One of the rules of the hearing was they were not allowed to say Medicare for All. Um, you know, they, nobody, none of the, they, they had these like bipartisan panels of people speaking on each issue. So there would be like an industry person, a conservative person, and like maybe half of a progressive person. And so you would get like the full uh, range of quote unquote opinion that was out there with nobody actually impeaching anybody else on what they were saying and the lies that were being spread. It wasn't a real hearing. It was a farce. They just let everybody kind of talk and they moved on to the next. Moreover. Mm-hmm. There was no publicity behind it, just like there isn't today. Like, I saw, I saw, I saw AOC on the news cycle this week talking about how Biden's going to lose the young vote. I saw those clips. She gets on TV. People are on TV saying things. I saw Rokana mm-hmm. on Fox News. I saw that clip. These people are on TV talking about things, but they're not talking about this. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I guess that's really what I meant, is that, like, they're they're still doing they're doing the messaging, you know, or, or whatever kind of messaging that they're doing. But they're they're never actually willing to just call people out, which is what which is what honestly like regular like regular people. They'll have they'll have way more respect for you or at least the people I know in my life. And I've worked some, with some pretty like hard people that like the if you like. I mean, it's very obvious as to why Trump appeals to a lot of people as much as he doesn't appeal to me. But like, I don't know. It's it's just it's they just it they just don't do anything. It's it's the doing of things, like you said, and and (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. Like imagine, yeah. uh, Just real quick, like imagine a scenario in which like one of member of the squad or whatever 
like planned to actually do like name names in one of those hearings. And they had like invited, you know, some people from like lefty independent media or whatever to be there and like live stream it or something like that, you know, draw, draw our own attention that we can draw to things like we're like the, the group, the, you know, the online left space is big enough that you could generate we could generate our own news cycle, probably, I think. Correct. You know? They could invite, look, Crystal's here in D.C. Kyle is sometimes here in D.C. and he's here you know, filming the show. I'm here in D.C. There's many people who are have already coming, are come, these activists I see on the line have come for these hearings. Um, I'm sure Jimmy would come with his million mm-hmm. subscribers. You know, maybe some of the... Maybe some of the TYT people would be willing to come if they were invited by a congressperson and given a special seat in the front row. Maybe some of the security <laughs> report people would come if they were similarly you know, invited and the carpet were laid out. And maybe a congressperson or two would agree to an interview on these channels as part of the inducement. Although, Well, Jimmy Dore would have to not be there in order for them to show up. So well, That's incredibly silly. It's so silly. It's like everyone just wants to feel like liked and accepted. And it's, I don't it's know. It's confusing to me that when people feel like they have antagonists out in the world, they don't know that the best way to get rid of an antagonist is just to be nice to them. Yeah. Um, so maybe you can. MFers, I don't even really want to be nice to, but I know it, <laughs> it's in my benefit just to like be, you know, as g- generous with my time as I can because it's better to have allies. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, I'll okay. yield the floor, but... <laughs> Thank you, Micah. Mostly because you're having this interference and your noise in background. Oh, my bad. Everybody's so upset. Um, oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. I it did not know. It happens. It's okay. There's people in the chat. But I appreciate you, Micah. Thanks for calling in. Yep. No worries. All right. Bye-bye. Let's see what... How about David? I don't think I've seen this little hamster face before. What's on your mind? Unmute yourself and talk to me, David. Alternatively, I can talk to Anthony. What's on your mind, Anthony? What's going on? You hear me? I can, loud and clear. Oh my gosh, I have so much on my mind. It's just so <laughs> much. I was, um, I'm writing an email right now to uh, one of our squad members uh, yeah. because uh, I live in their, well, not exactly in their district, but in the same city that they represent. And, uh, there, I I, uh, I watch every uh, House Oversight Committee hearing. They got three of them, uh, squad members on there, and uh, I like what the uh, what you guys were just getting on there with, like, oh, what if we could get the the everyone together from the disparate elements of the left, and um, it's kind of something I'd like to see with uh, this mode of I don't I wouldn't call it activism, which is kind of agitation that I do is I've been um. You know, I go to if they ever have like a town hall meeting, all of these Congress people around here, especially if you live in like a metro area, you have at least three or four of them and uh, they'll have like a town hall and you can kind of go and, you know, ask them your question or do something, whatever you want. For example, I uh, handed uh, this squad representative a packet of documents all about Julian Assange in person like a month ago and they took it, but obviously they haven't done anything about it, so... I mean, I, I'm trying, but also, uh, I like, uh, I like the, uh, this idea of, uh, well, we, we try to like fight the narratives and 
I honestly think that we in this kind of group are better equipped to fight neoliberal narratives than conservative narratives. And I don't want to get into why that is, but I just think we're better, better equipped to do that. So I'm the, I always like every day I listen to this local NPR show. I hate it, but it's, it's the most neoliberal garbage, but I call in and comment and just disagree and, you know, actually, oh, um, speaking of, I was uh, on that uh, state, the State of the Union Twitter space that night, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I only joined it because I saw you were on it. I honestly didn't even know who the other lady was, and uh, you you stood up for me and said, "Oh, he's not a poop." Oh, puppet. you're the guy. <laughs> yeah, I knew yeah, this yeah. voice sounded familiar. Yeah, they really tried to drag you, my friend. <laughs> I don't even know who that lady was. I just joined it, like, and he just happened to pick me right as I joined, and I was happy. And I, and I was like, I'm not discrediting you at all. I'm just. Yeah, that was so funny. Oh, I'm so glad you were there because sometimes I, I talk about this a lot because I was a little traumatized that evening, and I'm so glad to have someone else who experienced it. You were the one, so it was a very neoliberal space, at least as far as people who were talking and hosting. And you came in like a breath of fresh air. It was very early after all of the Ukraine stuff. So I was still a little, I mean, I'm still very green, but I was much greener and more unsteady on my feet. And you said some base, like some basic things that the left understands about NATO and some root causes of the conflict and dipped. And they, that woman launched into you like you had literally just said, I birthed Putin. I suckled him at my teat. He is my one true love. <laughs> She really went in, and I was not trying to talk about Ukraine because, again, like I did not feel qualified to do so. But it was crazy to me that there was nobody in that entire enormous room who, like, your your comments were completely anodyne. Like they were completely like, it wasn't even like it was like Matt Dust level of like, well, obviously, we, you know, this is a, this has to do with NATO expansion. Like it was just anyway. I'm sorry. I don't mean to like keep going over that, but um, I'm sorry that happened to you. But I'm glad. We were there in solidarity with each other. No, that was real. I'm glad you stood up for me. Thanks. I shouldn't have really spoken up there if I just joined it so, you know, quickly. And I didn't really know what the space was about. But <laughs> that was an experience. But I actually do that all the time. I, For, uh, for example, uh, Tom Hartman, I don't even think he picks up my calls anymore. So I, I used a uh, Google Voice phone number the other day. And I call and he he always has a uh, Rokana and Pocan and these kinds mm-hmm. of people on and. If uh, you can finesse your way through the call screener and just kind of pre- present a b- benign question to the call screener, and then you can really ask whatever you want if they get you on air. You know, these are the kind of spaces where I think we could really yeah, focus our, put ourselves to good use and not not let, let these uh, neoliberals and their fraud squad uh, enablers find a moment of peace for their uh, deceptive ways. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, I was I was watching Creep. And I I found myself very affected by her and activists who I trust and who are similarly frustrated with um, Democrats like, you know, Feeney, who's been on the show, have confidence in her. And I'm inspired by that because they are so much closer to what's going on on the ground than I am. And I I was really I was really torn tonight. Like, you know me, I'm not I, I fully have articulated all of the criticisms that there are to make of the progressives in Congress. And I haven't chosen personally to use, you know, the phrase fraud squad. I don't begrudge anybody else. It's, it's catchy and I get it. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, I, I guess there's still a part of me that's a little bit more hopeful than some folks or at least in some of them. And I was watching these women and they believed, they all believe so sincerely that they can make a difference. And there was something that was very compelling about it. 
And I wanted to help them even if it was a doomed cause. It was it was my Ukraine. <laughs> it's my version of sending weapons to Ukraine as wanting to like throw some money at these congressional candidates, like knowing it's a losing cause, you know. Um yeah. There, yeah, there's no reason to, you know, sour a space. Like if we're, if you're really going to be that one person and there, it's just kind of wholesome, like, yeah, and they're just kind of, but like, hey. I'd like them to win. Like I prefer a world where Nina Turner beat Chantel Brown. Like there's no downside to that except for, you know, the idea of making poor or asking poor people to give her money to do it. You know, that, that I understand is a line, but obviously a world where Nina Turner is in office is better than a world where she isn't. But, you know, at what cost is the real question? Well, yeah, yeah. go ahead. Just, I don't think, yeah, at what cost? I don't know. But at, at what number of progressives are they going to actually play hardball? Like, and my, I think they need 215 or more to actually and play I don't think, And I don't think that is it either. Cause, so I, I was like, I shared a, a lift with uh, Marianne. And I was saying this to her, I was like, I, you know, she was, we were talking about the numbers. She was basically was making that point. And I was like, well, no, the whole point of force the vote was that they had the numbers to do the specific thing and they didn't, which proves to me that it's not about numbers. And that is the entire point of force the vote that all of these Nimrods seem not to want to like get through their thick skulls is that you only needed six votes to make Nancy Pelosi, someone who 75% of Americans want to not be in office not the speaker of the house and they chose not to do it. They chose not to do that. Every single one of them affirmatively said, I want Nancy Pelosi to be speaker of the house. Cause, but for that, she would not be. Yeah. It's uh they have bad judges like character. These, uh, so I don't, you know, I think we got to give them some tough love, I guess. I don't know how to put it. I, I just keep, keep hounding them. All these progressives, all these neoliberal yeah. media well, people, I think they're doing a good job. If, if right. any of those people were willing to like really engage this issue with force of vote and have a substantive conversation meaningfully, I mean, I'm, I'm interviewing a couple of candidates tomorrow, and I'm going to ask them these things because I'm not against the idea of supporting these folks, but I need them to really be honest about what they are going to do differently and how they see themselves as an adversarial actor once they're in Congress, not just to Republicans, but to core centrist Democrats. And sometimes progressive Democrats who are out here voting for Iron Dome funding and all this kind of malarkey. Oh, yeah. Oh, just one last thing. The uh, the 2018 class of squad characters, they need only win basically their upcoming primary elections. And they're obviously going to win their generals. And then they got that five-year benchmark with the pension. So just keep that in mind, everyone. All right. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. And, and thanks for um, the other night as well. All right. Okay, I see all the old timers in here. I'm not going to keep ignoring you forever. There's a lot of there's a lot of old timers. Like you guys are regulars up in here. How about TJ? I don't think I've heard from TJ before. What's on your mind, TJ? Unmute yourself. Well, Brianna, thank you for the time. I appreciate it. Good evening. Good evening. What's going on right now, I'd say, is a, a failure of leadership in, in multiple accounts. I think we're dealing with the remnants of what it means to choose the lesser of two evils. Mm -hmm. And it's not a unique problem that we face, I think, today or even this last election cycle. I mean, it goes on a long time. Do you know um, the last time that Congress officially made a declaration of war? Officially, no. It was all the way in World War II. 
So I'm going to read a list real quick. We, we can call it the Democracy World Tour, sponsored by you know, the United States of America. So these are a list of countries that we've engaged special military operations in, while seemingly never following our constitutional duties of making an official act of declaration of war. Korea and China, 1950 through 1953. It's also known as the Korean War. Guatemala, 1954. Indonesia, 1958. Cuba, 1959 through 1961. Guatemala, 1960. Congo, 1964. Laos, 1964 through 73. Vietnam, 1961 through 73. Cambodia, 1969 through 1970. Guatemala, 1967 through 69, Grenada, 1983, Lebanon, 1983 and 1984, Libya, 1986, El Salvador, 1980s, Nicaragua, also 1980s, Iran, 1987, Panama, 1989, Iraq, 1991, also known as the Persian Gulf War, Kuwait, 1991, Somalia, 1993, Bosnia, 1994 and 95, Sudan, 1998, Afghanistan, 1998, Yugoslavia, 1999, Yemen, 2002, Iraq, 1991 through 2003, Iraq, 2003 through 2015, Afghanistan, 2001 through 2015, Pakistan, 2007, through 2015, Somalia 2007, 2008, and 2011, Yemen 2009 and 2011, Libya 2011 and 2015, and Syria 2014 through 2015. So just a few. I'd say just, just a few. And so I think the fundamental question comes down to as Americans, uh, this is not like a generational thing even, it's just a fundamental question over ethics and morals. I think it's up for us as people to decide whether or not we should be engaging in quote-unquote special military operations or quote-unquote invasions without following our very fundamental constitutional duty by uh, the, really our congressional members are responsible for. So I just wanted to bring that up. That's uh, a lot of lives, a lot of territory damaged by our actions. And so I think it's just an important point. I really appreciate that perspective, TJ. Thank you for that. Um, let's hear from, from Deanna. What's on your mind tonight, Deanna? Unmute yourself and let us know. Oh, Deanna's out either purposefully or accidentally. Uh, if that was an accident, go back in the queue. I see David's back. I tried to bring him up earlier. David, what's on your mind? Unmute yourself. Hey, hey can you hear me? This I can. Hey. Oh, sorry, the, the thing wasn't working uh, before. Um, <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I was listening to you uh, mention California before, which is, you know, something I know a lot about uh, with the state government. Um, and, and it's fundamentally, like, not an issue of whether or not there's, you know, enough Democrats to get anything done. They're not interested in getting most things done and there's just too much distance between the representatives and the people that they represent. 
Like, I, I don't know how it is in, you know, most other states, but you can't get, you know, even as a group, you can't get meetings with your congressman. You can't get meetings with your, your state assemblyman. It just, you know, if you're lucky, you can talk to their staff. Um, and the staff will just, they don't even tell you that, like, they're going to, like, work on the problems. They just commiserate and say, yeah, that is a problem. Yeah. It's, yeah. you know, there's just, the, the people that are in there right now are pretty much all just, you know, money. Just money-backed people. What's uh, interesting is one of the things that I learned, you know, as I was getting my political education at the Intercept Mm-hmm. And we were interviewing, Ryan and I interviewed AOC uh, mm-hmm. at the office, and, you know, she had just started. And mm-hmm. we did this interview with her and this uh, old school rep, I think it was from North Carolina. And it was mm-hmm. in, they were basically having this back and forth where he was kind of imparting his knowledge about what it was like and how to navigate the house. And, you know, the focus of the conversation very quickly became call time and how much time these people spend on the phone raising money now it's like not their fault that's the way it is you join congress and then nancy pelosi sits you down and says these are your obligations your fundraising obligations and what committee appointments you get on get and all these other kinds of things are contingent on your ability to fundraise your whole point is to fundraise for the party which is why aoc actually has more power than a lot of people people love to say things like well aoc can't really do anything and she's powerless I'm not trying to pile on her in particular, but compared to a lot of other folks, she has a great deal of power because she is a fundraising machine. I think she's like number two after Nancy Pelosi or something like yeah. woman can, can turn a buck. Yeah. And that should grant her a degree of independence, not just like in terms of fear of getting um, challenged, but also the fact that she doesn't have to spend all those hours on the phone to fundraise it like the other people do. She can send out some tweets and get the money quickly. Yeah. But that I mean, most people spend the vast majority of their time making these calls. And that does mean that they're not spending time reading whoever it was as packet about Julian Assange or brainstorming, right. you know, force the vote style ideas or whatever. I mean, but even beyond that, I mean, California recently had a push for, you know, in-state Medicare for all. And it just got sort of quietly killed. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and it really got killed on behest of, of Gavin Newsom. Um, yeah, we talked about it on the show. We had Ashkar on, um, oh. pressing him on, you know, why he seemed to be advocating advocating for it and why he didn't ultimately just force the vote in the issue so we could see exactly which of these so-called progressives in California were using Medicare for All for fundraising and right. other races but weren't willing to actually stand behind it. And, you know... Many people felt well, I mean, these actors were not answers were not satisfactory. I mean, Gavin Newsom is not a progressive, and he never has been. Right. I mean, his background is with the Getty family, um, so he's always been, you know, very much on the side of wealth, mm-hmm. um, just in general. Um, and it's an issue. <laughs> it's you know, he's representing that side of California. Um, but it's not just that, right? Because look, these women tonight. You know, I tweeted about it, but I did not tweet mm-hmm. give money to these people because I know what the attitude is in the lab. And I and I broadly share it. And yet, even though people are so over it and not trying to give money to these candidates, they all are working class. I mean, uh, Christina Olivo, uh, what from you know Florida, running in Florida, 
She was running as a she ran as a Green Party candidate, I think, in the last cycle. It she was disadvantaged by third party issues with the ballot. She's running as a Democrat this time around. She was telling the story of um, you know, being asked as she was miscarrying miscarrying a child how she was gonna pay for her medical bills and what a radicalizing experience that was, having to take care of elderly relatives and who weren't yeah. able to get Medicaid, how demoralizing experience that was. Another woman talked about um, being diagnosed with blood clots during her pregnancy that the doctors wouldn't diagnose until she basically held onto the bed and refused to leave the hospital unless they did another, you know, uh, yeah. scan. Like all of these stories, these are working class people. These are right. teachers and nurses. Corey Bush, we all know about her backstory. Yes. And yet there are, you know, many people on the left who are over it anyway because they do see someone like Cori Bush. And despite, I think, her being much better than many other presidents in office, still find her choices to be unsatisfactory, at least insufficient to earn their money. I mean, I, I personally agree, but I do understand where they're sort of caught between two worlds here um, because they do come from this background. They want to serve these people, but they also recognize that being in, you know, the Congress where you are, um, you know, whether, you know, wherever it is that they're serving, um, it's very much dependent on towing a certain political line that, you know, a, a lot of people, maybe not AOC so much because she fundraises her own, but a lot of people can just get like destroyed by opposition cash. And I'm sure they're very much aware of that. And I'm sure there's there's a ton of people that go into government, you know, saying I want to change things and then get confronted with this reality of, oh, well, you know, I can try and push for this stuff and have one term and that be that. Or I can try and stick it out for longer and see if I can change things over a longer period of time. Um, and I, I just don't think you can change um, the government, our current government from the inside like that right now. It's going to have to be a bunch of rebels coming together to really push issues um, constantly. What do you think that looks like? Um, yeah, I mean, it looks like actually following through on force the vote and things like that. Using well, here's whatever the thing, power though. The rebels, who are the rebels in this scenario? Because to follow through on force the vote ultimately still means you've got to convince six of those progressives to do it. Sure. I mean, I can't force the vote no matter how rebellious and hype i am <laughs> yeah you know? and, I, mean, I don't get a vote i don't want to be too down on electoral politics but unfortunately i don't think that our answer is going to come through there here's, I, what I think... I will, here's what i will say i know that at least one of them fully mm. did not understand what it was and the objection was solely on the basis of not liking jimmy Dore and feeling like he unfairly attacked aoc in a sense of wanting to protect aoc Okay. I, I can say that at least one of them, upon speaking to them, clearly fully did not understand, to fully just to, to date, like this was like a few months ago, fully just did not understand mm, what it even more was. More concerning. Yeah, <laughs> in some ways, right? Yes. In yeah. other ways, it's like, well, at least that means they don't have an ideological objection to it. They just were like literally did not get it. Yeah, although they need to be understanding the layout of the land at this point. I mean, it's one thing to not really know it when it's happening, but months later, there should be some sort of understanding uh, coming to. Um, but I mean, I, again, my, I, I, I tend to think that, I don't know, our, our country is very dysfunctional. 
And it really feels mostly like the it has to be collective action from the outside to change anything. That you're not going to get it through just electing people. We can't get the critical mass to do that. Even for small things, what we really need to do is have a critical mass of average people just out there stopping up things. Right. I mean, I, 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 gotta, I gotta push you though, my friend. I we sure. cannot talk like this. We cannot say yeah. pu- pushing up things, messing up things. Average people got to work it up, got to shake it up. I need everyone to just get a lot more specific with their language. It will save us okay. all a lot more time, you know, cause we all are like on the same vibe wavelength. Sure. We all agree on the vibes, but we got to get sure. past vibes. Well, like when I was at uh, UC Santa Cruz, um, one of the uh, things that would happen every year is you'd have, you know, uh, you'd have a protest where, you know, the workers would protest about how bad, you know, UC treats everybody because mm-hmm. they treat them horribly. Mm-hmm. Um, but the protests are just like, you know, a day. And yeah. so, and it, it doesn't stop any services. It doesn't, you know... It, it's a minor inconvenience for people. And at best, you know, what you have is people that support them say like, well, you know, you just deal with it for a day too. So it's like not even putting pressure on that way. Um, However, there was also an instance where students took over the administrative building and held people hostage for a period of time. And um, what's going on with this Disney stop? Uh, the Don't Say Gay bill, they seem to have had some success. There was a caller the other night I need to follow up with who was yeah. working with the people's, um, the, the sorry, the Poor People's Campaign that is trying to do this lengthy, um, historically large um, demonstration in front of the White House. There's this student debt event coming yeah. up. You know, there's this medic, these Medicare for All protesters are here right now. I mean, yeah, t- totally. But we'll see if they actually manage to be disruptive. I mean, the Disney people disrupted well, I the business mean, of Disney. Yeah. Well, that's, that's like I said, these guys literally took over the administrative building. They held Kerr Hall for several days and they forced the administration to capitulate. Yeah. I want to uh, read from the comments. Neoliberal tier says we shouldn't be uh, in the business of making excuses for, wait, no, that's not the one I was looking for. Sorry. It scrolled down. Oh, here it is. Uh, Rain Strom, why can't constituents call the squad and tell them to vote as a block? Why is it for AOC to do? Can't the Royal We do that? I would like to point out that despite the misinformation that you heard from TYT and Majority Report, who claimed that we weren't doing anything and blah, 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 while they were eating their turkey dinners, we, over the holidays, had phone trees and were calling incessantly to these people's offices for hours and hours, dozens of us trying to get them to communicate with us about force the vote. So to the extent that they were ignorant, it's because they chose to be and because they were not responsive because we were certainly putting in the leg and man hours for something that we believed in instead of sitting on the internet talking out of our asses. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I would like to see see more of that. I mean, the issue that was just like a weird fucked up situation that I don't think it's going to be exactly. And I do think that we are starting to, um, develop better relationships with at least some members of the squad so that we could get past. Like if that, if force of it were to happen today, I would feel confident in my ability to actually get someone to talk to me in person. Back then yeah. I didn't even know. I barely had a podcast. I was like two months out from being unemployed. Like right. it just wasn't even 
didn't seem like in the realm of possibility. Like, why would they talk to me? It's kind of how I was feeling back then. Yeah. I mean, we, it's, it's difficult. Cause like I, like I said, in, in California, a lot of my experiences with uh, university of California and how they interface with the students there and the student government, um, because they're basically ignoring all of it. They're, they're basically ignoring all the student organizations and the alumni organizations. Um, and it does not matter what anybody says at any level. Um, so it, it, it starts to feel like, how do you affect that? How do you do anything about that? Um, when there is a massive outcry, when there is stuff that's published and it's still, you know, well, sorry, you know, this is what we're doing. Well, it's, it's it's definitely going to be tough, and I definitely, I mean, I don't know enough about that system to weigh in, but it does seem like, you know, it when you're dealing with a school or something like that, or student debt, these things where it's less like um, uh, business chains that you can disrupt and profit chains that you can disrupt, I think you have to be a little bit more creative, but I appreciate you calling in to chat, David. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, let's hear from Julie. Oh, there you go. Unmute yourself, Julie. What's on your mind? Julie, can you unmute yourself? Julie? All right, let's go to Deanna. What's on your mind, Deanna? I see you're back in the queue. Can you unmute yourself, Deanna? It's the button in the bottom right. Don't hang up again. It's near the hang up button, but it's, it looks like a little microphone. Okay. There you go. Okay. It's so different from, from Clubhouse. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. How are you? Welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here. Um, I'm a big, big fan, uh, Sister Leo. And I, I want to start <laughs> by saying, people, I am a huge Jimmy Dore devotee. Hmm. He is a Leo as well. Oh, I didn't realize we, that. Yes, we are outspoken. We don't bite our tongues, and that is so scary to people. I don't understand why, but it seems to be uh, Tom Brady is a Leo. You see him cursing out people on the sidelines all the time. Um, um, Joe Rogan is a Leo, oh, changing the world, 11 million people a week at a time. But that's not what I wanted to, to go into. I just heard you say that one of the squad members was afraid of Jimmy Dore and whatever. He's, he's so passionate and he's super well researched and I, I just love him. He's wonderful. I listen every day. Okay. So what I want to say is I'm never voting for Democrats nationally again. Mm. I'm done with it. It's over. Obama cured me. Mm. Um, and what we have to remember is that the biggest voting block consists of independence, the apathetic, mm -hmm. um, people who just have gone beyond apathetic and just refuse to vote, and people who are third-party voters. Mm -hmm. So there are literally 100 million of us who could take over this political system if we, if we in fact unify, because I think we have issues in common. I think everybody wants Medicare for all, for all. Everybody wants uh, an economic system that works for everyone. And 
it just takes a movement of the people. And I do not mean marching because that does not work, but an economic movement of the people. Think about what happened when during the the George Floyd uh, situation, the N- NBA were the only ones who could really play. Mm-hmm. And they decided we're not going to play. Mm-hmm. All of our overlords aka the billionaires said well what what do they need let's sit down let's let's talk about it let's figure it out and along came um head coon in charge obama to talk them down and make them go back to work mm-hmm. and again i'm a leo so i'm not gonna bite my tongue at all I no, hope you don't you know, get in trouble. Obama also a Leo wouldn't want you to. <laughs> Eggs, you would think, but uh, he fooled me once. <laughs> Shame on, on He on fooled him. me twice. <laughs> uh, girl, oh, I know, me too. <laughs> so, you know, but what could have happened if they had said, okay, these are the things that need to change because we all know that our, our politicians work for them. They do not work for us. And if the 100 million of us decide we're only going to support and vote for those candidates who can actually get in there and get things done, then we can literally replace the sellouts with people who will force the vote when it's time to do that. People who. Okay, what? What do you think that that, what do you see as being a unifying thing that? not only unites kind of independence and whatever defectors from the two major parties, but also um, galvanizes non-voters, which, as you point out, is a big part of this constituency that Bernie was relying on but wasn't able to get the numbers that he needed. Well, I have to say that I think Bernie's biggest mistake was to not embrace UBI. Mm -hmm. UBI would end poverty overnight. Literally. And most people are running around trying to pay bills and they don't have time to sit and think about issues and and, you know, what may be happening and how. That's why so many people quit after COVID, because people for the first time and maybe ever for a lot of people had time to sit down and figure out their lives. Do you think but it hurt with the Republican, a conservative audience? Because th- they, they use that same fact as a negative. They say, you gave these people money, they quit, it hurts the economy, it hurts small businesses, they sit around, they're not productive. As I mentioned earlier, I was listening to Tucker Carlson, and he was arguing against um, stimulus payments and mm-hmm. gas card assistance in California, saying that it was creating a nanny state and inducing reliance on the state. And there's this very there's this very active narrative that vilifies the very things that people want. And do you worry at all? I don't have a, a dog in this fight. I'm just curious if you liaise with conservative folks in a volume where you can get a sense of like, are you going to win more or lose more by leaning into something like UBI as opposed to something like Medicare for all that doesn't seem to have quite those trade offs and that we've had a, a little bit more dialogue about publicly. Well, in Stockton, UBI was tried. It was discovered that people didn't stop working. They just did more meaningful work. They found things and ways to contribute to society that were um, positive, productive. They volunteered more. They did things that actually moved their communities forward. 
instead of working two and three meaningless jobs to that could actually be mechanized, like uh, uh, Yang was saying. A lot of these jobs, they're just too cheap to create the robotic situations that will replace them. Amazon could be totally, uh, completely computerized. It could be robots and and uh, the the things that they do, the cogs in a wheel and the repetitive work that the Amazon workers do could easily be done by non-humans. They're just too cheap to invest in that. But if people decided, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to go and do things like um, come up with ways to give everyone free energy, uh, which exists. Mm-hmm. The technology exists. And again, but for greed and hoarding and, um, you know, there's enough money to do all of it as we can see from these huge checks that have been written in the past month and a half for Ukraine and and the surrounding countries that are supporting the Ukrainian immigrants or, mm-hmm. you know, people. So what I'm saying is I, I engage a lot with Republicans. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm self-employed. I believe in... Um, a society that is run by a free market and a freedom mindset. But I call myself a socio-capitalist. And basically for me, what that means is that food, shelter, education, and well wellness care are all provided for everyone. One has to hustle and grind down to, in order to eat. And beyond that, If you want to go be Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, who is constantly creating things that make the world better, by all means, profit in the trillions for doing that. And that's, to me, a a perfect utopia, because there is no reason with the abundance that the earth provides that anyone should be hungry, that anyone should be unsheltered that anyone should be uneducated. It's it's just uncivilized. So I think that many people, I think many people who just identify as socialists or democratic socialists would agree with you for mm-hmm. the most part. You know, it's not, you know, it's, it's the, the conception of socialism isn't that everybody is like, that there is no more, you know, there's a such thing as market capitalism. It's not that there are no markets. It is that these basic, certainly democratic socialism is more about the social safety net provisions that you're describing mm-hmm. main departure i would probably guess from many folks on the left would be to say that there should be some kind of upper limit in the form of wealth taxes um, for people who are borderline about to earn to get to the trillion dollar mark <laughs> I mean, it affects a very small number of people and these volumes of money are so large that the human brain can't even con- conceive of them but yeah. even joe biden obviously today has come out with this um wealth tax and I mean what do you think about that what do you think about a wealth tax well I think that there should be a a minimum that everyone has to pay a minimum percentage of their income and or gains whether realized or not and I've given up watching CNN and all I only watch CNBC and Fox Business because that's they make the policies 
And so they were talking about it all day today. And it's really, well, they're saying this will never pass. We can't let this happen. (laughs) That's what they rationale. They're like, this is going to hurt. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's over and over. Um, Yes. This, this will be terrible. You, you're, you're punishing the job creators. You're, you're damaging the, the, the people who, who, actually are the engines of this economy and why would you want to punish them and they'll get taxed uh, by the estate tax when they die so you know they they have their little battles quarrels amongst themselves but for the most part they all agree there should be no wealth tax and that's ridiculous how do you think the, the conservative audience responds responds to that because it's very interesting i was saying earlier about how tucker carlson kind of plays this populism role but he, he does resists any kind of cash payments to people he resists the social safety net and he resists at times uh taxes on the rich although sometimes mm-hmm. you know it's, it's it's hard to read where he's gonna go sometimes yeah it's true that's true well you know i have to take it all back to uh america's fundamental uh, tumor, which is racism, structural racism. At at the core, there are some people who cannot bear the thought of some of us just having what we need without uh, a tremendous amount of struggle attached to it. Well, and that's so- That's why I love to talk about how most, I mean, I don't love to talk about, that sounds a little callous but I, I i think it's important to emphasize that most poor people in america are white oh absolutely absolutely at the same time the idea of giving everyone a certain amount to live on is um a problem that even those poor whites uh can't bear to think of when it comes to to black people. Well, let me let me ask you this because some some one of the reasons people prefer some people on the left prefer jobs guaranteed to UBI is mm-hmm. because there are depending on how the UBI is designed, it can end up giving people money, but not enough money to meaningfully change their lives if the social safety net is cut. And that's what a lot of you know libertarian advocates and conservative advocates of UBI are about. They say, okay, we'll give everybody a thousand dollars a month, but we're going to cut twenty thousand dollars worth of social benefits right social safety right. benefits right and then the other thing is that a jobs guarantee people argue you know if you have a jobs guarantee instead of ubi what you're basically saying is there's a lot of work to be done in the country that isn't getting done infrastructure mm-hmm. projects trees being planted babies needing to be held in nurseries old people need to be attending to okay so there's definitely work to be done right if you pay people good salaries to do that work then you get past some of the republican fear-mongering about oh you're paying people to sit at home or you're paying people who are ne'er-do-wells you can and you can say to white people who are from some of these places where there's all of this um, social shame around taking and, and black people there's a lot of social shame across the board around taking um, government benefits. It seems mm-hmm. less like you're you know on the dole and more like oh no I'm I'm doing a job just like someone who works for the post office has a government job. I have a government job, and you know I think you get around some of that stigma. What do you think about that the the job guarantee versus the UBI argument? I, I don't think it's an either or. I think it can be a both and. And I think that that helping people to find the place that they fit into best uh, 
the job that they love. And then if the government decides to subsidize that or provide that job, that's a beautiful thing. Giving people who want to just sit and paint all day a place to a space to do that by giving them a thousand dollars a month and making sure they have a, a shelter from the rain is also a beautiful thing. And there, there are some people who that's their largest contribution is to paint things and make things more beautiful. So yes, you can put them, give them murals and beautiful buildings all over the urban cities, all over this country to paint. Again, we can't find those solutions, though, unless the active effort is put into people over profits and over war. This this unlimited war budget mentality in this country has to stop. And it's our money. This is our money. Yeah. yeah. And, well, I and, appreciate your approach and... You sharing your political perspective with us, I, it was it was unique and I think valuable insight. And thank you for calling in. I hope I hear from you again soon. You will, my Leo sister. Take care. <laughs> right on. Take care, Deanna. Okay, you too. Bye bye. All right, let's hear from um Jordan. What's on your mind, Jordan? Uh, unmute yourself and and let me know what's up. Jordan, with your cute llama in your picture, can you unmute yourself or am I going to move on? All right. I guess I'm going to move on to Rojo. Rojo, unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind. Rojo, can you unmute yourself for me? I feel like I'm waking people up from a, a coma. Can you, can you blink for me? <laughs> can you squeeze my hand, Rojo? No? Okay. No worries. No pressure. Let's hear from him, Henry. Henry H. What's on your mind, Henry? Henry, you're killing me. I see Jordan got back in line, so maybe he's got his shit together. Jordan, what's on your mind? Can you press unmute? Is everyone dealing with, like, the same there technical bug? Okay, there you go, Jordan. I hadn't given their permissions yet. Um... <laughs> What did I want to say? Um, well, I wanted to start with the Will Smith thing a little bit. Sure. <laughs> Sorry. But um, I thought it was really just, hate to say, but hashtag toxic masculinity. And All right, let's hear, really it. Let's his, hear the take. Like, it was really his own ego and him defending himself from embarrassment as well as, um, like, he laughed at the joke. Mm -hmm. um, he wasn't. He didn't seem to be offended until like maybe he saw his wife, but we didn't see that cut. I really mm -hmm. need them to release the whole footage. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I'm sure and... it's coming. I think they're holding on to it the same way that they held on to. Uh, remember the debate when Elizabeth Warren called Bernie a lying? Oh sexist? yes. And then there was they were clearly talking on the stage, but you couldn't hear the audio, and then they like yes. trickled it out over the next few days for ratings. I remember that. Yes, I think yeah. we will see that, or if it like. If it goes anywhere into a little more legal stuff, we may as well. Mm -hmm. um, and that it was really, what really bothered me when he did his acceptance speech and then he said um, he compared himself to the Williams father as mm -hmm. well as saying um, love makes you do crazy things. 
Um, that's what I really wanted to see him apologize for. Um, really just connecting all this to a, a abuse and a like language around abuse, um, between and families, domestic abuse, stuff like that. And doing that all on the world stage. So what part of it is domestic abuse? Where's the domestic abuse angle? Because I hear I saw people saying that, but I don't know what the implication is supposed to be there. I definitely get the argument that it was about his ego and him saving face for laughing at the joke. I, I definitely get that it's a little dishonest to say that it's entirely about him wanting to defend his family and not about his ego. But mm -hmm. when people start talking about, like, this is the language that abusers use, I'm like, okay, abusers also sometimes say that the sky is blue. That doesn't mean the sky isn't blue. Do you know what I mean? That it seems like there's, I don't know that there's grist there for that uh, argument, that implication, but I'm willing to hear you out. To say about um, that he does, he fought someone out of love or committed an act of violence. Um, out of love, and that's what the yeah. I guess I see what you're saying. Um, because people do me, lots of things out of love that are legitimate. Yeah. People do selfish things with their kids all the time out of love. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to keep these poor kids out of my school. <laughs> out of love. I'm not saying it's good things, but if, if a parent were to say love makes you do crazy things because they realized they became a nimby asshole over their kids' education, we wouldn't say, oh, that's that's the abuse victim language. They must be in an abusive relationship at home. We would just be, be like, no, that's like just an intense mother. Yeah. You know? Not that he is abusing Jada or his family, just that um, kind of bringing that language out more to people and, and it, giving people another idea of how to use it. Sorry. Rambling no, no, no. I, I hear you, and you're certainly not the only person saying this, which is why I'm, I'm kind of wanting to mood it right now. Because I'm open yeah. to being told that I'm wrong, but like, let's, like, let's just really stick with this, this, this like parent example. Yeah. You see parents all the time doing things that are also not good. Hitting, slapping someone isn't good. Yeah, I was gonna say like a stingy. keeping your kid's school segregated isn't good. I would argue the segregation thing is worse than a slap, but okay, <laughs> regardless of how you feel. We wouldn't, you know, and, and, and parents do all the time say things like, I do this out of love for my child. I will do anything for my child. And we, we say that that's fine, but we're saying that because Will Smith is saying it about his wife as opposed to a kid, that there's this implication that, what exactly? It's, it's now abuse language? I don't know about that. Yeah, I see that. Just that it was kind of unsettling to hear it from like I guess America's dad as like people like to kind of think of him one of America's many fathers um from TV and to yeah, I think that's really like it's unsettling to hear that um after having to bring it there and try to like kind of wrap it up and get rid of it um when Sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. Take your time. When just on the stage to be at the Oscars and to to go and say that and to kind of tie it into that unwilling. I mean, like, I'm sure he didn't know that. Not that I'm sure, but I think that's something he probably didn't know. But it does like make you a little worrisome about the effects it could have, and the like, the more people picking up that kind of talk. 
Look, I, I do think it's definitely that language. What is similar, the, the, the similarity, okay, the reason that language is used by abusers mm-hmm. and used by parents and used by Will Smith last night, the, the language is useful because it's a way to sidestep the true motivation of something. But that doesn't mean that something yeah. is abuse. It is it is a way to avoid accountability for sure. But I can think of myriad Definitely. examples of people avoiding personal responsibility for mistakes that they've made that are not abuse. And there does seem to me, like I am very wary, I'm sorry, like in a, in a world where we had, we have full on Roman Polanski and uh, yep. what's his name? <laughs> Woody Allen and all these people that continue to win awards and be at these award shows. Yeah. Will Smith, you know, I, it's, I don't agree. I don't think he should have hit Chris Rock. But ultimately, in terms of the scale of the of the error, slapping, yeah. slapping, giving, giving Chris Tucker a love tap that didn't knock him to the ground or break his skin or anything, and all these other people raping these kids and stuff is yeah. not the same thing. And for us to be using abuse language for Will Smith, who this is literally the first thing that he's ever done in his entire life, at least publicly, as far as we know. <clears throat> and then jumping to that kind of a language, like I fully am willing and we should have a conversation about how he's trying to avoid accountability for acting out of a kind of um, defensive, ego-driven, probably depressed. I mean, I'm not a psychologist, so I shouldn't try to diagnose yeah. him, but it seems like to me like there's some other things going on in his life. Definitely that. It definitely um, seems like it was from other stuff adding up. Right. So I'm, I think that's perfectly fair to say all of those things and that he's sidestepping responsibility. But I'm a little hung up on this idea of using of, of the implication of it having something to do with domestic abuse, especially because, and I know people aren't going to like this, of the racial dynamics at play. Yes. I totally get that. Yeah. yeah. And another part was... Oh, I wanted to talk about um, Biden's budget and that mm-hmm. he has like two different tax proposals um, in it, a 7% increase for the corporate tax, and then as well as a 20 Jordan, you're mad quiet to me. Is Jordan quiet to other people? Oh, I'm sorry. I'll talk loud. It's probably this headphones I'm using. Okay. Um, so he had one of it's a 7% increase in the corporate tax rate, and then as well as a, like a minimum of 20%. I want to say like yeah, it was twenty percent um for everybody making over a hundred million in their um realized and unrealized income, so their stocks as well would be included. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just don't see in either of those passing. Maybe one. I'm not sure which one, but I like it's definitely not gonna happen. Um, for Biden. It, yeah, it's it's interesting because when I I watched it and I watched it twice because I could hear him saying the words, like you know, there's going to be a tax increase on the rich. But honestly, it kind of blurred by. The emphasis was not there. I heard him emphasize funding the police again. I yes. heard him emphasize, um, you know, uh, increasing the military budget, funding Ukraine. I heard him emphasizing that no one over four hundred thousand under $400,000 a year was going to get taxed. I heard him say that multiple times. Like, he knows how to emphasize a point. I yes. definitely got the message that no one under $400,000 a year was going to have their taxes raised. And I heard him say, I remember him saying that the tax rates that he's aiming for are not as high as they were during the 50s or 60s or whenever the peak um, wealth tax era was. I heard him say all of those things. But to be introducing like a wealth tax, ta- tax that should have broad populist appeal, he didn't name it. 
Yeah. You said a bunch of numbers. Like you just said it to me what the actual numbers are, but honestly, I didn't get it from the speech. I would have had to Google it and read it up from an article. Yeah, I read it from Hill article. I saw a clip of him mm-hmm. speaking, but I didn't see the full thing. Oh my gosh, my cats. Um, and that's like, it's something he's gonna like probably undersell. He's not gonna talk about much. Like he didn't talk about in the clip apparently. And um, he's gonna hope quietly goes away so people don't notice when it like fails miserably. Yeah. Like, yeah, I think that's right, and it's frustrating because like this would be a nice thing to actually root for for once, you know. Yes, he could definitely like at least pass one tax on the rich in his presidency, even things out a tiny bit, and actually like keep the country running instead of like falling into what it is now. I can't think of the word. I lost it, but it, it was it was funny because he he was also emphasizing the extent to which. We don't need, he was like, we've got a recovery, jobs are up, we're going to reduce the deficit. Like, come come on, King. Like, <laughs> literally no one's trying to reduce the deficit. Like, I Googled it, in fact, because um, I was saying to our new producer, uh, sorry, Ben, I, you know, ben, ben is on leave, so oh, yeah. I was in the Slack today, and I was chatting with the new producer, and I was saying to him here, where is it, where is it? Biden Welcome, said the thing fellow. about... Um, uh, decreasing the deficit and i was like who the fuck cares like who is yeah. this for and i was like do do democrats even care about reducing the deficit so i i googled a poll in a 2019 pew research center poll said that deficit reduction has declined as policy priorities among both republicans and uh, as a, pri- a priority among both republicans and democrats since 2013 deficit reduction has fallen as a top priority for both parties Today, 54% of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents and 44% of Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents say reducing the deficit should be a top priority. So those are pretty big numbers, but they were on the decline in 2019, and I can't imagine they're especially high right now. I googled some more, yeah, though, and I found that in Wisconsin, and maybe this is like a swing stage kind of a strategy or wherever vulnerable seats are a strategy. In Wisconsin, for instance, it's still a top priority, and I think it's maybe a spot a spot electorate you know a narrow electoral issue in various places but that's the other thing with democrats it's like just because there there are things that matter to people but that you're also never going to win on so instead of trying to fight that battle fight the thing where you can win because you're the more trusted party on that ground like bernie sanders was most trusted to talk about health care yes bernie sanders might not be most trusted to talk about something else even if he has the right opinion on something or even if it's something that's a priority for other people. Let's say let's say people also think that you know, uh attacking despotism across the world is a priority. Bernie probably isn't going to be able to win that fight because whatever Venezuela, Venezuela, you you went on your honeymoon in Russia, all of that shit. Yeah. So why even engage in that battle? Just stay in your lane and every time somebody brings up despotism, you bring up Medicare for all and you hope that you can get your issue to be more salient to people. But Democrats want to go and run and fight on somebody else's turf. Like anybody who cares about deficit reduction is not here for Joe Biden. Like who is yeah. this magical person? Um, Mansion, I think. I, yeah, I also <laughs> <laughs> Mansion Cinema. I also read that um, part of it they think was him thinking of him and trying to get him to, on board because um, he also didn't include anything for about around Build Back Better in the budget plan as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and not like put an egg in the basket for that. So yeah, yeah, like I don't 
he's not being serious um, with the stuff in that plan. Um, he knows it's, it's not getting passed um, and hoping it quite, it goes and dies. And the people that need to hear it, that needed to give him some more, they need to hear that so they can give him some a few more dollars, may get it. Um, they're probably gonna give him money anyway. To be honest, uh, if you're if you're supported by him like that, there's not much that's gonna be that can change your mind. Um, I mean, he's had the history, like he's been the, like in the Senate and in the House for decades. Like he's not changing on these things. That's what's really the craziest thing for me in this presidency is like people acting like he hasn't he doesn't have a long history and was in the White House before. So, yeah. Yeah, I was just talking, I was just talking to someone about this who's a progressive whom I love and respect. And they were like, you know, I, I, I can't believe Biden is this bad. And I love them. But a part of me was like, why can't you believe it? He's literally exactly as bad as we all said he was going to be. And I yeah. was called a fascist for pointing that out. Yeah. Like, I, even during his, um, when he was back with uh, Barack in the White House in my high school class, bringing up criticism of them in my civics class was like, got everyone to yell at me. Mm. And like Oakland, California, like the, like one of the farthest left cities we've got. So yeah, it's, I really, I was really hoping that Nina Turner would have won against, um, Chantel Brown. Yeah. That's what, yeah. Chantel Brown the first time. Um, and to see, um, her kind of be like one of Bernie's children, <laughs> I guess you would say. Um, and so hoping she does too um, for her next one. But um, definitely, like after that, electoralism kind of died for me. For like, that was one of the final nails in the coffin. Um, and I don't see that much changing. I, uh, like, with the squad and Jamal Bowman and Iron Dome, it's like, what is going on? Like, y'all are like so fumbling this so hard. You have the votes, then like Jamal Bowman's messing with DSA, um, and then yeah. kicking out the working the Palestinian working group. Yeah. It's like they are really burning the bridges that they that they had to cross to get there. Yeah, it does feel like more harm than good is being done in some respects there. And uh it's worth it's worth talking about. I I, you know, being there tonight, it was so, you know, I on a personal level, really mm -hmm. like personally Nina Turner. Yeah. And I see her. I see the toll of being in this limbo space. I feel, I can see the toll it's taking on her emotionally. Definitely. And I miss their spirit. You know, the thing about being in the Bernie umbrella was you don't feel alone. You have yes. just not to the infrastructure of the campaign, but this infrastructure of a community and the energy from the crowds and all of this stuff. And I see her, and I don't know, she seems so isolated and – you know, the base is left. And this is the argument that I, we're always making is that Republicans know how to feed their base and they don't worry if it's going to alienate some centrists because they know vote red no matter who is going to kick in. And they're going to they're going to vote for Trump or whomever it is, regardless. Mm -hmm. And Democrats spend all their time trying to appeal to vote blue no matter who. And they're like, no, no, the whole the whole magic of a vote blue no matter who scenario is that you're supposed to be able to actually appeal to the base and rely on the center, the fringes to just fall in line. Yeah, but they don't do that. And so this and the progressives are doing the same thing where they are so worried about how they're going to look and who they're going to alienate that now they can't even raise money because the left doesn't trust them. Yeah, the base that actually 
will shell out in their little $7 increments doesn't trust or hit the streets for you. Yeah. Right. Like when a city council person um, ran in Oakland, like I've got stopped by DSA twice in one day in different parts of Oakland. I was like, wow, y'all are really out here for, uh, it was Carol Fife. Um, and like that kind of did give me a little hope back in electoralism to see them actually help on a candidate win in Oakland, Mm. um, that cares about the issue somewhat. Um, but Ooh, like joining DSA and seeing some of the problems they have um, more up front or like because I hadn't been to like an in-person meeting because of the pandemic mm-hmm. and seeing like people snicker at ideas and not really wanting to they don't like count the votes in my chapter mm-hmm. um, and don't have a record of that. So you can't tell what's been voted on before and how it went. So you can't really it's very hard to propose things and know where it's going to go. Unless you've like know someone who's like an encyclopedia of the local chapter, so yeah, I need to, like I need a lot more changes on the left before I can get into electoralism and people be more um, serious about things instead of like making things like debate club. Well, you could join a socialist alternative. Yes, I am still on the lookouts. Um, Hit me up, folks. <laughs> um, I'll yeah. s- still considering others, but yeah, yeah. Hi. Well, thank thank you for calling in. We need to have we. You know, I hear the person in the comments saying like, "Let's talk about to do what to do outside of electoralism," and I I hear that, and we do. I see neoliberal tears saying that Morgan Harper's debate is today, and I fully intend to watch that. Thanks for reminding me. All I do is watch content, my God. (laughs) But I will, um, I do want to watch that. I didn't want to watch it real time because I figured I could make it half as long if I watch it afterward on double speed. So that's what I will do while I'm blow drying my hair tomorrow. Yes. (laughs) I'm a multitasking queen. And thank you so much for calling in. Let's wrap up tonight. Enjoy your burger, one. Hope you get to eat. Bye. Thank you. Thank you, Jordan. Let's wrap up with the one and only Kusha. What's on your mind, Kusha? Brianna, are you able to hear me? I am. Talk to me. (laughs) Thank you so much for introducing me as the one and only. Um, I can give you a fun fact about my name. My mom was the one who chose it. It's a a word in Farsi that means someone who's extremely hardworking, someone who's extremely diligent, and who persists and perseveres. So every day I I hope I can just live up to my name. Um, (laughs) Well, you know, I'm, I'm up for it. So thank you for that opening. So, and there aren't that many Kushas even in Iran. Uh, I mean, I was born and raised in Cali, but my parents are from the Middle East. So there aren't even that many Kushas in Iran to begin with, though. So yeah, it is special lad. <laughs> and Madan Luz, there aren't that many either. My last name is that of a, a Kurdish last name. Um, Kurdish on both sides of my family mixed in. Of course, Iranian people are very mixed people. Um, you had the Greeks over there. You had the Arabs. You had the Mongolians. You had the Turks. Um, so there's a little bit of Kurdish in there as well. And of course, the Kurds are a group of people who've long been persecuted and long been oppressed throughout the Middle East, whether that's Bashar al-Assad slaughtering them in Syria or Saddam Hussein gassing them in Iraq. During the Anfal campaign, he killed like anywhere from like 50,000 to 180 plus thousand Kurds or Turkey uh, slaughtering Kurds for the past century or so, it feels. Uh, Islam Republic of Iran been killing them in the 80s as soon as they consolidated power like 
the goal from Abul Hassan Bani Saad, the first president of the Islamic Republic, and Khomeini, the first supreme leader of the two ones thus far, they crushed the Kurds badly who were resisting in the Kurdistan province. And many Kurds went left wing as a result. I mean, there's still a faction of the Kurds that goes for like a, a ethnic nationalism and like a tribalism and a separatism. But many of the Kurds have been very willing to move beyond. It's a very similar question about like the self-determination of a nation, similar to like the struggle um, many Jews had when it came to uh, following the Holocaust. Like what's the type of path, like a Zionism rooted in like a nationalism and racism and xenophobia and tribalism. Or you had many Jews who had a very left wing approach to life, like Albert Einstein, for instance. And so, um, I mean, you know, I'm not one to, you know, emphasize the fact that I'm a Kurd for the sake of nationalism or anything. I think that Iran is one of the most diverse places in the world throughout history. People have wanted to be there for its nice um, climate and environment. And it's been an area where many people could mingle and uh, many great traditions like Nowruz just passed on the 20th of March of this year. And as you may have seen, Iranian people have a great time celebrating. I was just at my auntie's house. She had a nice gathering. And so um, I think that's the best is um, from Iranian history is showing uh, at least the periods when people could enjoy each other's diversity of background and diversity of expertise and diversity of um, abilities and so on. Did you have, since we're winding up here, did you have anything to say about today's episode? I don't want us to go another 20 minutes, so if we can oh, get, no, get no, out of no, here no. by 1130. Exactly. Yeah, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I did. And yeah, I can, so 1130 would be 830 my time. So yeah, one thing I was, uh, well, a few things you said that were very prominent throughout, but I think it was one of your earlier callers who mentioned it, and I believe it was Grace. And she was talking about like, is all this inevitable in reference to war? And I don't think it is at all. I, there's a quote from Martin Luther King that I've heard before and I've looked at before and I really like, and I think it answers her question. And he said, quote, time itself is neutral. It can be used either destructively or constructively. More and more, I feel that the people of ill will have used time much more effectively than have the people of goodwill. We'll have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good pe people. Human progress never rolls in on the on wheels of inevitability it comes to the tireless efforts of men willing to work to be co-workers with god and without this hard work time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation we must use time creatively in the knowledge that the time is always ripe to do right end quote and i'm not religious at all in fact i'm very critical of all organized religions as i find them be an organization of superstition of falsehood lies and fables um but at the same time i fully agree with his sentiment about time and its neutrality and how it's used I think one of the most important exercises that um, a history professor Howard Zinn recognized was the fact that people really need role models throughout history. Um, and so much in the U.S. we see the role models being put forth like as, you know, whether that's uh, Ronald Wilson Reagan or Barack Hussein Obama or Teddy Roosevelt, they're all war criminals. And so for me, what I think is more important is what Howard Zinn talked about is looking for people throughout history, U.S. history, world history, who've, of course, no one's flawless. I'm not saying that at all. But whose record, whose body of work, whose legacies are leaning on the best of what human beings can be and have been. So I look at like Hypatia. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she was one of the smartest people in the history of the world. And she lived about like 1,600 years ago. 
and she was killed in one of the most disgusting ways by religious fundamentalists, Christian religious fundamentalists. She was stripped naked. She had her eyes gouged. She was killed coming back home on a carriage. And she was she's considered a genius by scholars and historians alike. And what she loved most was educating people. She was a philosopher. I think she was a brilliant scientist as well. And she didn't have a chance to have any trial or anything for any wrongs the religious fundamentalists perceived she did. And all she wanted to do was commit herself to the well-being of the world. And this was 1,600 years ago. If you look at, like, about, you know, during 2,500 years ago, roughly, you have someone like Cyrus the Great, one of the most benevolent leaders in the history of human beings. Like, I believe in the Bible, he's the only non-Jewish figure who is referred to as a Messiah. And if you look at Xenophon, the Greek... Um, writer's work, Cyropedia, it details a legacy of Cyrus, both mythical, but also based off the truth of how people felt about him, inter intertwining both of them, because he had such a positive reputation around the world. Of course, Jewish people hold him in high regard for freeing them from Neo-Babylonians Neo like Nabonidos. And he, even when uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was stroking Trump's ego uh, in one video of them, in a White House meeting, I believe he told Trump, you're going to be to the Jews, you, Trump, which has, he has an area called Trump Heights in the Golan Heights, if I'm not mistaken, which Israel occupies, serious territory. And Benjamin Netanyahu told Trump, you're going to be like what Cyrus the Great was for Jews, like Lord Balfour was for Jews, the British uh, leader, if I'm not mistaken. You're going, to, you're going to be following the suit. So I always look for people like that, like Rosa Luxemburg, uh, who was killed by the German fascists. Um, Waldemar Pops, fascist. Um, she was one of the most amazing figures in the 20th century, a big role model for, my, for me. Or Salvador Allende from Chile, Olaf Palm from Sweden, Claire Zetkin in Germany as well, Socrates, of course. So I think that's a, the, one of the most important exercises. Like you mentioned about Nina Turner and like the feeling of isolation. I think it's important to find friendship from the best leaders throughout history, but also from our contemporaries, because one gives us a guidance of who's done it already or who showed that it can be done. Nina Turner loves to quote Nelson Mandela saying it always seems impossible until it's done. Who's and also in the present. It's 1129. I'm done. Okay. All <laughs> right. Okay. I, I, I appreciate you, Kusha, but I, I really want these to be conversational. You know, and I don't want to be in a position to feel like I'm always cutting you off because I often appreciate what you have to say, but like, it's got to be conversational. It's got to be not a, a, a monologue, you know? I, please feel free to at any point just and say. And it's got to be kind of on topic a little, like, you but know? It was on topic though. It was. Uh, I started with Grace's comment and then I looked up. Okay, but I, I, I have also gone to school and I'm good at. At, at, at saying what I want to say and making whatever I want to say tie into the, to the lecture topic. Right. Sure, like, same thing. Right. But I'm not, this isn't school. And if we don't have something organic to say in the context of this kind of like group conversation, then you don't have to say anything. There's no brownie points for it, you know? So I just, it's not for brownie points. It's not for brownie points. I want people to learn this information and we're having a back and forth right now. All right. I, I don't Do you mind. have a take on this, on the slap? On the Slack discussion that you're the having? Slap. The Oscars. The Oscars. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. I definitely do. So I think that I watched it. I think there was a Japanese version I watched as well that showed, I guess, some uncensored version. But as you were saying, like, there some parts may be trickling out later. And I think that what Will Smith did 
represents some frustration that many people may have throughout their lives, especially when they become celebrity. And when you're celebrity, you have so much more going against you when it comes to your safety, your security, your family, constant vitriol against you, constant bigotry against you, constant hatred against you. And he said he's been having it pent up for him, of course. He said since the days of Tupac, when it was Tupac and Jada Pinkett, and I'd upset him, he said, and he said he's had built up frustrations, and he mm -hmm. snapped there, clearly, and he shouldn't have done that. There are many times I play basketball, and people are so deceptive, lying, cheating at the gym all the time, and play so dirty and lie and everything, but I always try my best to hold my, like, there's no benefit of starting a fight there. I'll lose my membership there. I'll get beat. If, if it's like five people, you know, what, what am I supposed to do? And Will Smith, he wasn't able to control himself from snapping. And so I understand what one of the previous callers was saying about how he laughed first and then he and then he did it afterwards. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously, I think his wife's reaction, Jada Pinkett, played a big role in him going to act thereafter. I just think he didn't control himself that well. I think what uh, Chris Rock said about it being one of the most um, most memorable moments in Oscars history is correct. I also think when Sasheen Littlefeather spoke and Marlon Brando gave up his Academy Award for the Godfather to her. That was a profound moment. This is a profound moment in the sense that like it showed one losing their control when it shouldn't have happened. And obviously Chris Rock made a rude joke. I didn't like that joke at all, but he shouldn't have done it. And Will Smith shouldn't have slapped him. I mean, I think his, his yelling back and cursing, like I think it's best not to curse if possible, but sometimes you can't control your emotions in those senses. Like I think if he just did that from the beginning, that would be a much more reasonable response. But of course, it was it's more powerful too. Like the, the thing that gave me chills and kind of made everybody stop in their seat, sit up in their seat was the shouting. I think a lot of folks assume the slap mm -hmm. was a, mm -hmm. was fake, but you could mm -hmm. hear the emotion in his voice when he was shouting. And that really brought everybody down to earth. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. Agree. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that the slap was, some people may have perceived it to be comical when I, I just showed it, I was trying to show my mom and like, I started from the slap when I was like, Oh, I don't want to show you from this video. Cause it, it could look like a comedy skit. You know, if it's, you just see him go up slap, like, Oh, they planned it. But you're right. In fact, if you show someone the video from, I think when he starts yelling at Chris Rock from when Will Smith starts yelling at Chris Rock and saying like, keep my wife's name out your mouth. And mm -hmm. then you move it back into the slap order. Like say you show it in reverse order. I think someone would find it more profound. Because you're right. I, it is much more compelling what he was yelling at Chris Rock. He could have yelled it the same way without any curse words. Granted, like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say he, it's, a, sometimes I can't control myself if someone's being so obnoxiously rude and disrespectful on such bad faith, which obviously he perceived Chris Rock to be so distasteful to his family. Well, even though like initially he laughed, but then he saw his family's reaction, he decided to act. Obviously the point about ego plays a role here too, but I do think if he would just start yelling back or because there was no other way he didn't have a microphone or anything. He'd have to go and like ask someone and do like he had to, I think, feel even myself. I feel like I'd have to say something back. Maybe you would feel the same way, too. But there was no I wouldn't feel the need that I have to go up and slap him. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Kusha. And on that note, folks who want to hear more slap discourse can listen to last night's episode. I've never had more people in a room which I think make, means that people should look, take a good long look in the mirror at themselves. <laughs> Their political priorities, I kid, I kid. It was fun. You know, Ole is the best and, like, the funniest person in the world to me. 
that's here on the channel. Remember that you can listen to these episodes once they publish here, but you can also just listen to them on Spotify and subscribe as you would to any other podcast. So that makes it easier for you to share it with people um, who don't have the call-in app and are, are interested in participating live. You can do that too. There were so many hilarious episodes from last night's episode that I encourage you to clip them. As we've discussed, one of the great things about this app is that you can use the scissor tool in the transcript to identify clips to excerpt and you can download those clips as audiograms and post them to social media so they're like little pictures with words on the bottom which increase the likelihood that someone's actually going to listen to it um, and it also makes it easier for me to push those to my social so I appreciate it when you do that uh, as always, I appreciate it. If you listen to today's podcast, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash badfaithpodcast for $5 a month, but we put a pretty, pretty healthy chunk of the episode on YouTube as well. I think it's actually a really important exchange we had. I, I put a longer clip, even though it's a premium episode up, because I really think that exchange about the ethics of providing weapons in the Star Trek analogy is really important. And it kills me when, you know, those kinds of clips and videos don't go viral as something really stupid. The comments are always so supportive and they're like, this is the best conversation that's happening on the internet. This is the best channel ever. Then it doesn't get that many views and I don't really earn money on YouTube. It's not why I wanted to get more views. I wanted to get more views because I'm proud of it and I wanted to be out there. So if you're inclined to like the video, leave comments to help the algorithm post it to YouTube, all of those kinds of things are very helpful, not just with this, but with all videos, but I really especially enjoyed the exchange I had today with Joe that we put up. Um, thank you. Take care of yourselves. Uh, and as always, please do keep the faith. I was a lion in the tall grass Wish I had a pilot and a podcast Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass And travel with portable speakers playing bars skags I wish I had a million dollars I wish I had a million albums I wish I had a million problems That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes I wish I found a genie lamp I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man I wish I was a comedian in late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies.